If you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to finish it out today and then move on into uh, 2 Thessalonians. It hasn't been that long, but, uh, <laughs> but we have we have been going at a good pace uh, on, through the book. So uh, it's been hopefully uh, good for you guys. I don't know. It's always you guys, know, the guys that get to stand up here and preach every week. I think like we always think it's good, but we're biased. <laughs> and so hopefully you guys have enjoyed our, our study uh, through First Thessalonians, and as we continue into Second Thessalonians, that it'll be uh, more of the same. Um. We're going to start in verse 12 uh, today and look at Paul's final instructions uh, in this particular letter uh, that he's written to this uh, brand new or fairly new uh, church plant. And what we're going to see today is kind of this maybe comprehensive guide to Christian living uh, in these last verses. We see that, that Paul gives some instruction about uh, how the people in the fellowship are to relate to the pastors in the church. Uh, how people in a fellowship are to relate to each other. Uh, then he talks about kind of, uh, kind of an inward, you know, some spiritual discipline kind of things, and then ultimately uh, how we're to relate to God. And so he kind of covers uh, his basis in uh, in Christian living in these last few verses. So starting in verse twelve, he says that we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And, you know, for us pastors, like, we love this verse <laughs> because we get to tell you that, you know, you should esteem us, right? It, it, it's, I'd say that in, with a little bit of sarcasm because it's, it's weird to stand up here and read something like this uh, to you. Um, but this is Paul's instructions to uh, the Thessalonians to respect those who labor among them. And when he talks, talks about labor, he's not talking about just this idea of work, but he's talking about uh, work to the point of exhaustion, and, um, you know, I, I can tell you that, that sometimes being a pastor is like that. Sometimes there's some weeks that, that it is work to the point of exhaustion. Not every week is like that, uh, thankfully, but some weeks uh, are like that. And, uh, you know, you have pastors that, that joyously do this. And even on those weeks that it feels like, um, you know, we've worked to exhaustion, uh, it, it's our joy and our pleasure uh, and more importantly, our privilege uh, to get to do that for the fellowship. But Paul is uh, acknowledging uh, those who labor among you, uh, and not only that, but are over you in the Lord and admonish you. God has set up a leadership structure in the church, and, and we're not going to fully unpack that uh, today, not even scratch the surface really of that today, but God has unpacked or built for us a leadership structure in the church of, of elders and deacons. Uh, and they have different roles. And if you have questions about that, you know, I'm sure we've got some stuff online about elders and deacons and, and their various roles. Um, but, but in this leadership structure, God has, has made it so that, that people serve uh, in different capacities inside the church. And I say role uh, very intentionally instead of saying position. Because I don't, I don't know that we necessarily see in the Bible like a hierarchical positional kind of a thing with, with the leadership structure of the church as much as we see that God has given some uh, roles that, that not everybody has. And it's our job for all of us as Christians to kind of play our role church, and we're going to see uh, today, uh, you know, some of those roles in terms of encouraging one another and admonishing one another and those kinds of things. Uh, but Paul is acknowledging that God has given some um, 
to pastor the church. And part of that is, is not only laboring uh, sometimes when it's difficult to labor, but also admonishing the people. And, and that's a hard thing to do, and it's something that we as pastors intentionally sign up for. Right? We sign up for the fact that, that sometimes people need to be admonished, and, and, and I want to uh, make sure that I note that, that even as pastors, like we need to be admonished. Right? And, and one of the beauties of the leadership structure that we have here at the door is that we have a plurality of pastors. And one difference, you all have three pastors. Um, I have two pastors. Right? I have two other pastors uh, that, that uh, admonish me, and then I get to admonish them at times. And um, you know, there are weeks when we get together that you know, sometimes two of us are having to talk one of us off the ledge you know, because of rough weeks and difficult weeks and difficult circumstances. Uh, and not even that, just sometimes the weight of just carrying the burdens of the people, right? We, we carry the weight of things going on uh, in your lives. And again, it, it's our privilege, it's our pleasure uh, to get to do that, something that we intentionally sign up to do. Uh, but, but we carry those burdens. And because of that, um, you know, we, we get to pastor each other in, in our model. And it's one of the reasons that we subscribe to the model of leadership that we do. It's one of the reasons that we don't have, you know, a guy that's at the top of a hierarchy that's kind of all up there by himself, right? And so, so Paul is saying to the people, acknowledge that. Acknowledge the people that, that labor on your behalf. Um, you know, our, our job as pastors is not to be necessarily your life coach, right? We don't do that. Our job as pastors is to be concerned for your spiritual care. And again, something that we take very seriously and that we don't take lightly. Um, as, as we pray for you throughout the week, as we talk to many of you throughout the week or text or email, uh, however it is that we communicate, um, you know, we have your spiritual well-being at the forefront of our minds all of the time. And, and again, it, it's weird to stand, like, I don't want to feel like I'm standing up here, like, bragging, like, your pastors are awesome. That's not, not, not my point here, right? But Paul is acknowledging, uh, rightly, uh, the work of faithful ministers of the gospel and calling everybody in the fellowship to recognize that and to esteem highly uh, in love those who engage in that kind of a work. And at the end of verse 13, he says this line that seems like it doesn't fit, and he just says, be at peace amongst yourselves. And so the encouragement is uh, to esteem those, respect those, care for, love those who uh, labor on your behalf, those who pray for you, those who diligently minister to you. And then he says to be at peace amongst yourselves. Now, I don't know about you, I've said many times before, <clears throat> I, I've, I've grown up in the church my whole life, and, and I've seen a lot of things in the church. And the church is not always at peace amongst itself. Maybe you've experienced that as well. Um, not only experienced, like I've, I've ashamedly, like I've participated in the church not being in, at peace amongst itself uh, over my life. And there's something about when, when we rightly esteem one another, when we rightly respect one another, when we rightly care for, when we rightly love one another that just kind of brings peace into the house. And I think this is what Paul is talking about here. D don't fight what God has put in your life, not, not only in, in you know, those who uh, are over you in the Lord, but even those who are around you in the Lord, people that you fellowship with, don't fight it. Right? We, we've talked about before that, you know, we recently that we just, we trust who God has brought into our midst here in this fellowship, right? We don't necessarily get to pick and choose the people that we fellowship with. We trust that God is bringing people together, um, you know, as we've talked about before too, from all walks of life, 
right? Some, some of you in this room might not naturally be friends outside of fellowshipping in church, and not even for a bad reason, just maybe your paths in life would not cross outside of something like this. And, and when we trust God and we recognize his providence in our life with respect to our fellowship, our fellowship here at church, with, with those who um, lead the fellowship, with those who are in the fellowship, that there's just something uh, that brings peace about when we don't fight what God has brought into our lives. Right? You all bring something to my life. Hopefully I bring something to, to your lives as well. And this is God's intentional design and his intentional plan. And Paul is calling us to recognize that and he's calling us to not fight it so that we can be at peace, ultimately trusting God with those that he's placed in our lives. A pastor that I respect one time made a comment, something along the lines of this, saying that being a pastor is a commitment to being misunderstood. And some days it feels like that. Not every day, it doesn't feel like that every day. Some days it feels like that, like we're swimming upstream, right? Um, trying, trying to lead people sometimes in a direction that is not a direction they would have chosen for themselves or maybe not a comfortable direction, right? And, and it's our commitment to you uh, as pastors of the door that, that we are going to lead you as best as we can to the best of our abilities in God's word and what God's word says and what God's word calls us to do. And then the call that Paul gives out as an apostle, he would say, follow me insofar as I follow Christ, right? And we would say as pastors the same thing to you. Follow us, not because we're great men, not because we're the smartest men or the most articulate men out there, not because we're handsome, not because we're charismatic. Follow us insofar as we follow Christ. And this is a journey that we get to, to go on together as we follow Christ together. Paul goes on in verses 14 to 15 to say that we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so we've seen how Paul has called people in the fellowship to relate to the pastors. Now we see how Paul is calling people in the fellowship to relate to one another. And he says that we urge you. In other words, this is strong language. Paul's not saying, hey, I've got a suggestion for you. Hey, here's a good idea, right? Sometimes we might want to soft pedal things and we would say, why don't you think about this? No, Paul is throwing that all aside and saying, I urge you. In other words, like pay attention and, and do what I'm asking you to do here. And he says, we urge you to admonish the idol. Remember from a couple of sermons back that, that in Thessalonica at this time, it was believed that there were people who quit their jobs in order to pursue their religious fanaticism, right? They, they were so fixated on the second coming of Christ that they quit their jobs so that they could watch out, you know, for the second coming of Christ. And, and they were a drain on the church, expecting the church to provide for their needs when they were perfectly able-bodied, able to work, able to provide for themselves, but unwilling to do so. Right? Remember that that's a thing that's going on here. And so Paul is telling the people that in order to rightly love one another, you need to admonish the idol, right? Tell them to kind of get off their duff and go get a job and, and do what they ought to do in providing for their family, right? And we, and we do this in love, not because we're offended by them, right? Not because we're offended by somebody that would maybe live a different way than we, but that we love them enough to say, this isn't good for you. 
You're not living in a right manner. Paul says to admonish the idle. He says to encourage the faint-hearted, right? Those who are just having a difficult go of it, right? Maybe you've experienced in your own life just a rough stretch, you know, a hard season for whatever reason. Uh, or maybe you know somebody who is just, a, just going through it, right? Kind of the, the old saying that, you know, when it rains, it pours, right? If, if that's you or you know somebody, Paul would say, encourage that person. Be intentional in encouraging that person, right? We can sometimes hear the things that are going on in one another's lives, and we might say, well, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. And maybe we're faithful even to do that, right? We, we, we follow through in our commitment to pray for somebody. But Paul says to encourage the faint-hearted, which, which requires some face-to-face one-on-one interaction, right? It's a neat thing when throughout the week you get a phone call or you get a text from somebody, some, from somebody saying, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about you today. Hope everything's all right. A little thing like that really goes a long ways in somebody's life, right? And so Paul is saying here to be intentional as we encourage those who are going through difficulties. He says, help the weak, Right? He doesn't say, look down on the weak. He doesn't say, critique the weak. He doesn't say, point out the flaws of the weak. He doesn't say, get together with somebody else and talk about the weak person over here. He doesn't say that. He says, help. Help the weak. The implication here is that the, not necessarily the person who's physically weak, but the person who's weak in their faith. Right? Don't, don't complain about the person who might be younger in the faith than you and maybe hasn't learned or figured out some of the things that you figured out over your time walking with the Lord. Help help the person that's trying to figure it out. Help the person that's trying to get their faith, uh, get a foundation of faith in their life. And then he just kind of covers the rest of it by saying, be patient with all of them. Be patient with the weak. Be patient with the faint-hearted. Be patient even with the idle. Be patient with them. And what's implied here is that, that our patience comes from God's patience with us. Right? God is infinitely patient with me in my life. God is gracious to me. He's merciful to me. He loves me. And if I understand those things to be true, then, then that ought to play itself out in the way that we're patient with one another and gracious with one another and caring for one another, Right? And so this call to be patient with the weak, the faint-hearted, the idle is directly connected to our understanding of what Christ has done for us, right? And being patient doesn't necessarily mean that, that we excuse sinful behavior. It doesn't necessarily mean that at all. But, but it might mean that, that we're not so quick to point the finger. It might mean that we're not so quick to point out somebody's faults and their flaws. Like, we're pretty good at that, aren't we? Um, one pastor in a sermon I listened to one time said that it's a shameful thing to be an expert in the sin of others. I'll tell you what, like I'm an expert in the sin of others sometimes. More so than I'm an expert in my own sin, right? And Paul is telling us, be patient. Be patient with those that we struggle with. Be patient. Don't, don't be so quick to critique. Help and encourage and love and serve and care and pray for them all. He says, see that no one repays evil for evil. I think we can understand this at least in concept, maybe not so much in practice. 
right? If, if, you, if you do something evil to me, my tendency is I want to do something more evil to you so that you'll get a message, so don't do that to me again, right? That's kind of the way my brain works, probably yours too. <clears throat> Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. Do, do you remember those words of Jesus? That when he says, if, if someone punches you in the face, what should you do? Punch them back? Put them on the ground? No, he's like, let them hit you again. That, that kind of goes against our, our Western American sensibilities, right? You punch me in the face, I want to defend myself, at least defend myself. If not, come at you harder so that you won't come at me again. But Paul, in, in accordance with Jesus' words to turn the other cheek, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. If you take from me, I want to take from you. Right? I want to take back what you took from me and maybe something of yours again so that you won't do that to me again. Jesus says if someone takes something from you, what, what does he tell us to do? Give them more, right? Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Then Paul says always seek to do good to one another. When he says one another, he's talking about the people inside the church. Like always seek to do good to the brothers and sisters, right? We can get behind that idea. Right? None of us here are perfect. We're all flawed. We're all you know, trying our best to, to follow Christ. We can get behind this idea of always doing good to one another inside the church. But then he says, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, meaning not just the people inside the church, but the people outside the church. Always seek to do good. That's hard, isn't it? It's hard to always, like maybe I can mostly seek to do good to everyone, but always, <clears throat> always seek to do good to everyone, both inside the church and outside the church. I, I don't even know if I'm interested in that, let alone if I could actually do it, right? But always seek to do good to everyone. The Bible tells us that there's a defining mark of the church. We've talked about this many times. You, you, know, you know where I'm going with this. That the, the defining characteristic of the church is what? The way that we love each other. Not the way that we infight, not the way that we critique, not the way that we point the finger, but the way that we love one another. That's what Jesus says is the mark that will tell the world who the followers of Christ are by the way they love each other. Paul doubles down and says, don't just love inside the church, love outside the church and do good to people outside the church. Do good to those who don't do good to you. Be kind to those who are not kind to you. Be gentle to those who are not gentle with you. Be patient to those who are not patient with you. That's a tall order. That's a hard one to do. But in all of this, he's telling us, here, here's how you ought to relate to one another. Right? Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everybody. Don't repay evil for evil. And don't just stop there. Don't be neutral in it, but do good. Do good to those who might do evil to you. This is how we're to relate as Christians to one another and to those out there, to those in the world, that we would do good to all. Then in verse 16, Paul gives us some, you know, what I might call, for lack of a better term, some spiritual disciplines or some ways that kind of within ourselves uh, that we ought to think. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every kind of evil. And so as if the list that he's giving us so far isn't hard enough, right? Be, be good to those who aren't even good to you. Then he, then he continues. And he says, rejoice, not sometimes, not when you feel like it, not most of the time, but he says, rejoice always. And, and I don't know about you, but there are just some days where that word rejoice is not part of my vocabulary. There, there are some days that, you know, you just wake up in a grumpy mood, and that's just the way the day goes. Other days might, might start off okay, and then something happens to kind of put you in a mood. And Paul doesn't qualify this statement. He just says, rejoice always. Rejoice always. In, in other words, be, be on the lookout always of things that cause you to rejoice. Right? We're, we're all wired kind of differently. Some, some of us are wired a little more as, as an optimistic kind of a person. Some of us are wired a little bit more pessimistic, and we kind of have our bents of, you know, some of us by default kind of think of the positive. Some of us by default kind of think of the negative, right? But again, Paul doesn't qualify this statement. He says rejoice always because there's always something worthy of rejoicing. There's always something that we can think about, about who God is, about what God has done for us, about his characteristics, about how he loves us. There's always something that gives us cause to rejoice. He says, pray without ceasing. Again, doesn't qualify. He doesn't say pray as much as you can. He doesn't say, you know, carve out some time for prayer. He doesn't say, you know, when you get up in the morning, pray first thing. Not a bad way to start the day, but he says, pray without ceasing. In other words, pray all of the time, right? These are definitive state. Rejoice always. Pray all of the time. And I have to think what Paul has in mind here when he says pray without ceasing is that he's probably not calling us to pray without ceasing that, like that we would win the lottery or something like that. Right? How, how is it that, that we pray to the God that knows everything? How do we pray to the God that sees everything? How do we pray to the God that hears everything? How do we pray to the God that's had a plan for all of eternity that's unfolding moment by moment? How do we pray to the God that holds the universe together and that causes everything to happen that happens? How do we pray to that kind of a God? And it's probably not by saying, God, here's my list of improvements here's what you can do better, right? That's how we pray a lot. That's how I pray a lot. God, it would be really great if you didn't do this. God, I have this idea. If, if, you, if you could just do this thing and make this happen, that, that would be awesome. That's how we often pray, and I don't think that's what Paul has in view here. I think what he has in view in our praying without ceasing <clears throat> is that we conform to the will of God in our prayers. You don't ever see Paul praying for his circumstances to change. There was that one moment when he had kind of this thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it is, but some, some kind of an affliction or ailment. And he asked God if, if God would take it away. But then he very quickly comes to the conclusion, you know, God's grace is sufficient for this ailment or this affliction that I have. Right? He, he succumbed to the will of God in, in his prayer. Right? You don't ever see Paul praying 
praying that he wouldn't have to have a day job so he could just focus all of his time on, on gospel ministry, although I'm, I'm sure that was on his mind, but we don't, we don't have any record of him praying, God, if I didn't have to make tents, that would be really cool. Right? You don't ever see Paul praying like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get on this boat. If it could not wreck this time, that would be really awesome. If I didn't have to go days without food, that would be really awesome. We don't see Paul praying those kinds of things. We see Paul praying things like that he, he desires for people to grasp the depth of God's love for them. We see Paul praying that people like, would come to faith in Christ. Those are the kinds of things that Paul prays. And so when he says, pray without ceasing, I think we can take maybe a cue from Paul's prayer life as to what he means by that. And his prayers are not, not really inward focused. And I'm, I'm not standing here saying like you should never pray for yourself or you know, things like that. I'm not saying that. But generally, you know, what does your prayer life look like and what kind of things do you pray for? And how do you pray for the God that, that already knows everything and has ordered everything? Right? He doesn't need me to tell him as good as my ideas might be, he doesn't need me to tell him how to run the universe better. Right? He needs me to, to come underneath his will. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Right? He doesn't say just give thanks in the good circumstances. He doesn't say give thanks in most circumstances, but he says give thanks in all circumstances. And notice that he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances, but give thanks in all circumstances. There's a difference there. There are plenty of circumstances that have happened in my life that I'm just not thankful for. Probably true for you too. And Paul's not saying give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances, in the most difficult of circumstances, in the circumstances that you don't wish upon you or anybody else, give thanks in those circumstances that God is with you in them. Does that make sense? Give thanks in all circumstances. Then he tells us that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. To rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances. Those things in, in particular are God's will for us. It's God's will that we would always find the things to rejoice for in our life. It's God's will that we would pray without ceasing and that our prayers would, would not be self-centered. It's God's will that we would give thanks in all circumstances. And then he gives us a couple of don'ts here. He says, don't quench the spirit. And the idea is that, that when we don't rejoice always, when we don't pray without ceasing, when we're not giving thanks in all circumstances, that maybe that's something that quenches the spirit. And the idea of quenching the spirit, think, think about it this way. If you've, anybody, anybody ever built a fire? Wood stove, campfire, whatever, you built a fire. Like, you've got to keep the fire going. Like, it doesn't just go forever without some tending to. Right? Sometimes you've got to throw some more wood on the fire. Sometimes, you know, you've got to get down on your knees and you've got to blow on it, right, to, to make this fire to continue to be what it is. This is the idea of, of not quenching the spirit. The idea is like keep throwing wood on the fire, right? Keep blowing on the fire so that it won't go out. Yet all of these things that Paul is telling us are ways of throwing wood on the fire. It's throwing wood on the fire to rejoice in all circumstances. It's throwing wood on the fire to pray without ceasing. It's throwing wood on the fire to give thanks. It's throwing wood on the fire to 
admonish the idle, to encourage the weak, uh, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. These are all things that throw wood on the fire. Reading scripture is throwing wood on the fire. Being here on a Sunday morning is throwing wood on the fire. Connecting with one another throughout the week for the purpose of encouraging each other. Not just to ask about how work is going, but to encourage one another in the Lord. That's throwing wood on the fire. And when Paul says, don't quench the spirit, he's saying, continue to throw wood on the fire. Continue to do all of these things. In the list, this isn't an exhaustive list, like the list could go on and on. I think Mike and Jacques, you guys would say as you're down here working with one another, like you're throwing wood on each other's fire, right? As, as you're talking about more than just the nuts and bolts of how the building works, right? You're encouraging one another. You're throwing wood on the fire. So don't, <clears throat> don't quench the spirit. He says, don't despise prophecies. And what I, what I don't think that he's talking about here is necessarily the idea of, of the Old Testament prophet who's foretelling future events. I don't think he necessarily has that in view as much as that he has in view the Word of God. Don't despise the Word of God. Don't despise when you come to church on a Sunday morning or when you go to a community group throughout the week and you hear about the Word of God. Don't despise it. Don't toss it aside. Don't, don't consider it merely a good suggestion or a good idea. Right? There, there's this idea out there among a lot of people that you know, Jesus maybe was a good man and a good teacher. And, and maybe we ought to pay a little bit of attention to what he says as a good man and a good teacher. Paul is saying, don't, don't despise the word of God. Don't, don't cast it aside as, as something that it's not paramount. Don't cast it aside as something that is unimportant. Don't cast it aside even as something that might be a good idea or a good suggestion. Don't despise prophecies. He tells us to test everything. Right? One, of the, one of the beauties of being a Christian is that, that we, don't, we don't get to make things up and say this is the way things ought to be. We, we have a standard in the Word of God that we can measure everything by. Right? You don't have to take our word for it as we stand in front of you week after week and, and do our best to expound to you the Word of God. Like You, you have a standard. And if we ever get it wrong, you know, I, I would hope that somebody would come to us and say, ah, th this doesn't line up with, with what's in the book, right? We, we have something by which we can measure the truthfulness of what we teach. Paul says to test everything. In other words, the, the implication in testing everything is that, that you would know enough about Scripture that you would be able to test what you hear and to say this lines up with Scripture or this doesn't line up with Scripture, Right? And as we test everything, he says, hold fast to what is good. In other words, hold fast to what lines up with the word of God. Hold fast to it. In other words, cling to it with everything you have as you've tested it. And then in case he missed anything, he says, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. Romans 1 kind of gives a scathing indictment of humanity. And one of the parts of the indictment, it says that, that as humans, we are inventors of evil. <laughs> like Paul kind of gives this long list of just the depravity of humanity. And then, and then he just says, like, you even invent evil. Like there's things that I can't even list because you're always coming up with kind of new, new ways, right, to engage in evil. And Paul says, abstain from every kind of evil. 
In other words, anything that, that lines up with Scripture that Scripture would say is not good, abstain from those kinds of things. We're kind of in an era of history where I'm seeing more and more as I, as I um, consume news on a daily basis, people more and more referring to God's word as hateful. And it largely has to do with gender and sexuality and those kinds of issues, right? The Bible says one thing, our society says another. And if we come against what society says, they're actually saying that, that God's word is hateful. Not, not only is it antiquated, right? I've been hearing that for a while. But people are now saying that, that God's word is hateful. And, and it's because, as a society, we're, we're inventing new kinds of evil, <laughs> I mean, in one sense, there's nothing new under the sun, right? But, but we're, we're, in, we're inventors of evil, and the Word of God comes against that. And as we cling to it, as we hold fast to it, as we, as we don't despise the prophecies, right? We don't despise the Word of God, and, and we, we hold fast to what is good. We who are trying our best to be loving are actually called hateful because of our holding fast to the Word of God. And Paul encourages the church at Thessalonica, to abstain from every form of evil. Then verse 23 talks to us about how we relate to God. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And so, he reminds us that, that God is, as he calls us to be at peace with everyone, right? Calls us to be at peace with one another. He reminds us of the God of peace, right? And that God himself will sanctify us completely. And for the sake of time, like we, we don't have time to, to get into fully what sanctification is. Pastor Brent preached on it a while back if you want to go back and listen to that. But the idea of sanctification is, is being set apart, and being holy, being blameless, right? And, and there's a sense in which when we are justified, when, when we come to faith in Christ, when we acknowledge who Christ is and what he's done for us, and when we submit to his rule and his authority in our life, we're, we're justified in an instant, right? We're forgiven of our sins, we're, we're declared innocent in an instant. And then there's a sense in which we're, we're declared sanctified in an instant in that we are set apart and we belong to Christ, but there's also a sense of sanctification that happens throughout our lifetime. From the moment we come to faith in Christ to the moment that we see him face to face, he is sanctifying us. He is making us holy. Right? Um, um, there, there's a sense in which I'm set apart and belong to Christ right now, but there's also a sense in which I'm a work in progress. Right? And that's true for you too, if you know Christ. And Paul reminds us here that it's God who sanctifies us. It's, it's not up to me to sanctify me. It's not up to me to try harder to be better. It's not up to you to try harder to be better. That's not the message of the gospel. That the message of the gospel is that Christ has done for you the things that you can't do. In other words, you can't try hard enough to be good enough. Right? There was only one person that was good enough, and that's Jesus Christ. And so kind of a, a freeing message of Christianity is that, that I don't have to try harder to be better because I can't try hard enough to be good enough. That's freeing because 
There, there's a lot of, a lot of, even within Christian circles, teaching out there that kind of center around how you need to try harder to be better. And that's an exhausting way to live. Because if you're like me, it doesn't take you very long of trying before you realize, like, I'm not going to clear that bar, right? And so Paul reminds us that sanctification in the life of the Christian is God's work and that he will sanctify us, not, not part of the way, not some of the way, not most of the way, but he'll sanctify us completely. And he says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way for you and for me that our whole spirit, our whole soul, and our whole body will be kept blameless the coming of Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ is blameless. Right? He did the thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived a life that you and I were not capable of living. He, he died a, a sinner's death even though he was innocent. Right? He died the death that you and I should have died. He was our substitute. And Paul is reminding, of, reminding us of this in these few words. And then to seal the deal, he says, he who calls you is faithful. Right? Timothy, in Timothy, we're told that even when we're faithless, that God remains faithful because he can't disown or deny himself. In other words, God's faithfulness to me is not predicated upon my faithfulness to him. So if I have, you know, moments of unfaithfulness, it's not like God looks down and says, you know, forget about it. God is faithful first and foremost to himself. And his faithfulness, like my lack of faithfulness doesn't wreck his faithfulness to me. Isn't that comforting? And Paul reminds us that he who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Not probably, not might, not maybe, but he will surely do it. In other words, this work of sanctification in the Christian is God's work. And when God starts out to do something, we're told in the Scripture that he'll complete it. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. He's going to see it through. I don't finish everything I start. You probably don't either. God finishes everything that he starts. And then as Paul wraps up his letter, he says, brothers, pray for us. And what I find, I always find this interesting about Paul. Paul probably would have given them a long list. Here are all the things that you could pray for. But he doesn't. He just simply says, pray for us. Because he's writing a letter to a group of believers who are dealing with their own difficulties, their own persecution, their own suffering. Paul could have taken a moment here at the end of the letter to say, hey, I relate to what you're going through because here's what I'm going through while you're going through this, right? He doesn't. He just simply says, pray for us because this is not about him. He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. No, I'm not going to tell you to do that, but point here, I think, is like, show affection for one another, right? Show, show some affection for one another, like, you know, pandemic and the thing aside, give each other hugs and give each other handshakes and pats on the back or fist bumps or whatever, right? The, the point here that Paul is saying is to show affection for one another because we, we are a spiritual family of brothers and sisters in Christ as we follow Christ together. 
and it would be right in the Lord that we show affection for one another. It says to put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. In other words, like this is important information here. Make sure that you read it. Make sure that everybody hears it. And Paul was not a guy, I don't think, that was self-promoting. I don't, I don't think Paul is saying to make sure that everybody hears this letter because Paul was just so interested to make sure that everybody knew what he had to say. I don't think Paul was, was self-promoting that way at all. But what he's writing here to this church, this, this brand new church who's still trying to get their feet under them, suffering persecution from the first day that they opened their doors, right, struggling a bit with their, their eschatology and how, how they're viewing the last things, right, Paul He's encouraging them in this. And he knows that what he's writing here would stand up to the test against the word of the Lord. And so he's putting them under oath. In other words, like, swear to me, promise me, make a commitment that you're going to make sure that you have this letter read to all of the brothers, that everybody hears it. Because what he says in it matters and what he says in it is important. And I hope that as we've taken however many weeks or months uh, we've been in First Thessalonians, that, that we're not missing the importance of this letter. We're not missing the importance of um, you know, what Paul is saying, what, what God himself is saying through the hand of Paul as he writes this letter. And, and as Paul often does, he closes out his letter with a reminder of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that it be with everyone. That the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is a difficult thing for us to fully wrap our minds around. Because we're, we're not fully gracious because of the things that we talked about before. Like sometimes we want to repay evil for evil, right? We're, we're not a fully gracious people, but, but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is the unmerited favor of God. And it's not that we're in this neutral place where, where we just haven't done anything to earn God's favor we've done anything and everything to not deserve it, right? We're not neutral in our stance with God. And as followers of Christ, we, we've experienced God's grace. We've experienced his favor when we haven't earned it. And we've maybe even tried our best to not deserve it, yet we have it anyway. And so this isn't just a closing out of a letter, Paul saying, you know, this isn't his email signature that, you know, has a, a pithy saying at the end. He's reminding us of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he's done for us the things that we could never do for ourselves, that he's loved us when we didn't deserve it, that he's put up with us at our worst, that he's patient with us as he's calling us to be this way towards those around us. And so Paul in these last few verses is reminding us how we relate to one another inside the church, how we love one another, how we relate to one another outside the church, our own spiritual life, and ultimately how we relate to God by remembering the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would live in it and that we would walk in it every day. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you um, are gracious to us when we don't deserve it. Thankful that uh, even in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our flaws, that you love us and that you care for us. And so I would pray for us today that we um, would be maybe even painfully aware uh, day by day of our own brokenness, but more so that we would be aware of your grace for us, your love of us, your patience with us, your kindness towards us. 
And then as we become more and more aware uh, of our brokenness and your love, uh, that it would cause us uh, to rejoice in the things that you've done for us, the things that you have done and continue to do for us, and that you would help us um, as individuals that, that go out from here into our little corners of, of society, uh, but also as a church as a whole, that you would help us to be beacons of light, um, proclaiming always in the words that we speak and the things that we do uh, the truth of the gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.